Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today, Dr. Peter Williams. Um, I don't know if you know the name Peter Williams, but Peter Williams and I go pretty far back. He was a professor at Aberdeen University when I was doing a PhD. He had recently got done with his own PhD at Cambridge University. I believe he was teaching for a couple of years somewhere else, and then he got hired on Aberdeen University, I think a year before I got there. And Pete and I, and not only was he one of my professors there, but he was also a fellow churchman. We went to church together. We kind of served in ministry together there, and we became family friends. We hung out uh, as families, and I kid you not, Peter Williams is one of the smartest, most brilliant people I have ever spent time with. And, um, and I spent time with, I've, I've hung out with a lot of really smart people. Um, and he just is off the chart. This guy is so incredibly brilliant. And he wrote a book called, can we trust the gospels, which is like a, like a popular level treatment of that question. Are the gospels reliable? This book just came out and I read it, um, right when it came out and it is so good. And he is so good and winsome and wise and shrewd in many ways and knowledgeable when it comes to understanding and defending um, and teaching the truthfulness of Christianity and the Bible. So I wanted to have Pete on the show just to talk about some of the nitty gritty kind of scholarly questions that surround the veracity of scripture. So you're really going to enjoy this episode with Peter Williams. If you are a new listener to the show or even an old listener to the show and you want to support the show, if you've been blessed by the show, if you've been helped, encouraged in your faith, then please do consider supporting the show through patreon.com. That's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. You can support the show for as little as five bucks a month for as much as a hundred dollars a month. There's a few people I got supporting the show at a hundred dollars a month. Got a whole bunch of $5 a month and would really appreciate your uh, support to the show. So again, that's patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw. Okay. Without further ado, let's get to know Dr. Reverend uh, Peter Williams. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology of the Raw. I am here with my uh, friend from the past, uh, Dr. Uh, Peter Williams, and thank you so much for being on the show, Peter. And I have to tell, for my audience that isn't watching this, but is simply listening to it, I'm staring at Peter, and behind him, I kid you not, is the capital of the United States. He is apparently right in D.C., right in the heart of D.C., so thanks for... uh, Waving the flag. He, I, yeah, I was going to make a joke that he's wearing an American flag t-shirt or something. He is not. He is dressed very well. <laughs> but thanks so much for being on the show, Peter. Great to be with you. So uh, I wanted to dive into the topic related to this book that you just came out with called Can We Trust the Gospels? Mm-hmm. And uh, your publisher was kind enough to send me a free copy. And usually when I get a free copy of a book from a publisher, I kind of set it somewhere and I... Even if I want to get to it, I'm like, oh, I just can't get to it. But this one, first of all, is a short book. It's a, less than 150 pages, and it just seems so interesting. And I know that when you address a topic, it's going to be super compelling and thorough. So I picked it up, and I, I, I could not put it down. Uh, um, 
So yeah, it's super, super helpful. But can you, why, why don't you start by giving us just an overview of why you wanted to write this book and maybe give us some key arguments, some things that you yeah. address in the book so that they give, give the reader maybe a taste of what they're, they're in Well, for. this is a book I started thinking about writing 22 years ago when I first began speaking on this topic. And it seemed to me there was a niche for a short book laying out the case for trusting the Gospels, which could be handed out to people who are simply inquiring or not sure of the foundations of the faith or whatever it is. And it has to be short. And what I've seen is there are some good books around like Craig Blomberg's book on the reliability of the gospels, but it's, yeah. it's too long to be that sort of giveaway book. And also it goes into some quite in-house discussions about theology um, and about the new Testament scholarship itself which a layperson isn't necessarily going to be interested in. They're wanting to know right. um, in their terms and their understanding, is their ground to trust the Gospels? So that's where I'm trying to make sure that everything I say, I can document in such a way that if people want to chase right. down the footnotes, they're there so that they can see them. Um, the other yeah. thing is I wanted to reset the way we argue um, to focus this title, um, Can We Trust the Gospels? It's very deliberately chosen. Because I want to argue yeah. that we all trust things every day. And it's not that we're saying that everything to do with Christianity is on some super amazingly high evidential level. Actually, what we're saying okay. is that there is good grounds to believe it and trust it, like all sorts of things that we're already trusting. Uh, and I think it's and, and quite important to get that distinction right. And trust it in a sense, not that you have to believe it or that this is true, but that the gospel, the presentation of this person named Jesus of Nazareth in the gospels is a reliable historical representation of what he did and said. Is, is that sure? So I'm, so I'm the, saying the trust in a, yep. in a historical sense, trust in terms of what um, Jesus said, uh, trust your life with. But I also <laughs> want us to be using the right sort of categories of evidence. Um, so, okay. Often what people are, are trying to do is thinking that they need to prove something uh, the way a historian might uh, prove something. But let's remember history departments aren't about establishing truth. They're about applying a yeah. very rigorous method to reconstruct the past. But you wouldn't want to apply the historian's method, for instance, to a rape case. In fact, it'd be positively cruel to do so. Um, it simply wouldn't be appropriate. And, and that's where we've got to distinguish between um, these uh, sorts of methods and what we uh, base our lives on. Likewise, people sometimes uh, think there should be some mathematical proof for faith. But, you know, there's no mathematical proof that my mother loves me. But I think it's uh, manifest right. that she does. And it's important that she does. So I think that's um, where we've just got to make sure that people are expecting the right thing. And I'm saying... yeah. We base our lives on trusting other people. Uh, otherwise, you curl up yeah. and die on your own because you wouldn't, you know, accept food from anyone, yeah. buy food, anything like that. We're fundamentally social creatures. And so God presents us with this socially based evidence. We are equipped to assess whether it's trustworthy and the Gospels do really well on that basis. What are some of the challenges? Give kind of, let's dive into the material. And like, what are some big 
common uh, uh, pushbacks that people raise when they want to kind of discredit the truthfulness of the Gospels? What are some of the big things that, you know, I, I, the name that always comes to mind is, you know, Bart Ehrman, or I'm yeah. sure there's others out there that are, um, that like to say, well, what about this? What about that? This clearly shows that we can't trust the reliability of the Gospels. What are some of those things and how well, do you Well, I respond? think that we've really got to distinguish two groups. And one is this sort of popular consciousness group where there's almost no information background and so you can basically say what you like you know you can say oh it's yeah. not evidenced you know it all was made up lots later but they're not actually dealing with any of the evidence and information so they're not really accountable to that then you have the skeptical yeah. scholars the skeptical scholars do deal with the information but one of the things that skeptical scholars do is they actually concede a huge amount of ground uh, without tending to say it so even quite skeptical scholars of the gospels would concede all sorts of ground that the popular skeptics of the Gospels wouldn't. For instance, they would assume okay. that the Gospel writers must have some information to um, the geography of Jerusalem, the layout, they get the Mount right. of Olives right, Bethany, these sort of things. They just, yeah, they take it for granted that that's the case. Actually, in the popular consciousness, that hasn't been connected up, that really the Gospel writers do know uh, the layout mm. and the geography of the land, um, again, skeptical writers assume that gospel writers have got quite a bit of knowledge of Judaism and of the Old Testament. Um, skeptics would not necessarily think that they had that much cultural knowledge, uh, uh, you know, popular skeptics. So one of the things I'm doing in my book is simply bringing to popular consciousness all sorts of things that everyone agrees um, about the gospel right. writers, that they've got this much information. Yeah, the the your I think it's second or third chapter. Um, oh, what is it? Third the, chapter uh, is probably. Did they know their stuff? Yeah. Did yeah? Did the gospel writers know their stuff? To me, that chapter where you show just from several different angles how the gospel writers were so steeped in the first century context, they were getting geography right, culture right, they were getting all these things correct, so that. Already, the historical weight of evidence would l at least lean toward them getting, you know, Jesus and his words correct. And you even compare that with like second century writers that yeah. weren't in the in the same context, and they didn't talk about hardly any geographical stuff or show yeah. awareness of Jewish culture. Can, yeah, can you maybe dive? Yeah, so in a I mean, it's all four there. gospel writers do this. They all have information which no other um, gospel has, and in fact, no other written geographical source we know of has. Um, so whether you're right. looking at ancient writings like Strabo or um, uh, Josephus, none of them have um, all of the things you have in the Gospels. And they know where the land goes up and down. They know where the water is. They know where people have to pay tax. They know, um, you know, all these sorts of things, traveling times. Um, and that's, they know the language. They know people's names, uh, the right sort of yeah. types of names. These are all quite impressive things because of the level of specificity you have in the Gospels. Now, again, someone can take a skeptical approach, but many people who, who take an initially skeptic approach simply haven't read the Gospels. I mean, I would say, you know, just read them, right. uh, see just how Jewish these things are. Um, and of course, the Judaism fits far better on early on, because we know that Christianity right. rapidly becomes more Gentile in its flavor. So the fact that we have these very Jewish gospels, that they really know um, the geography of the land, that they know the types of names people had, that all fits well. 
I mean, it fits easily if you say the Gospels yeah. are written early. Um, and it, it's yeah. hard to explain it otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Now, you do have um, some extra biblical sources like Josephus and, um, oh, who's the other one? Is it Pliny or? Uh, yeah. No. Uh, oh, and, and, Pliny the uh, Elder. There are other sources you could get information yeah. from, but you wouldn't get the same amount. Now, um, now, with Josephus, okay, with Josephus, though, and I, you dress this, I'm just throwing you a softball here. <laughs> with Josephus, uh, the thoughtful person's going to know that, well, wait a minute, the manuscripts of Josephus were copied and passed down by Christians. So obviously, Christians sort of embellished any reference in Josephus to Jesus. How, how, would, you, how would you respond to that? So what I do is, I mean, I only mentioned one of the two references from Josephus to uh, Jesus. And I mentioned yeah. the one which is less that, often yeah. disputed. Um, and I think you can make a defense that both lots of Josephus texts were um, were well handed down by Christians. But I think it's important also to recognize that, you know, Christian scribes rescued the classical civilization. Um, you know, the literature of the cla of classical civilization has been handed down by Christian scribes. Um, the Greeks and Romans didn't hand down the cultures that preceded them. You know, um, this is a remarkable thing. And uh, we know basically that they record all sorts of things about all sorts of Roman gods without changing them. So I think the thought that later scribes huh. change texts um, needs to be challenged. Um, there's also there's a question of their linguistic competence to change things, because when you're writing, copying a manuscript hundreds of years later, can you really write the language competently of several hundred years earlier? Um, there's also the question of motivation. Um, yeah. People that, that uh, in the medieval period are not trying to prove that Jesus existed against skeptics who said he didn't. You know, so again, okay. what, why are they? Why would they be putting in references to Jesus uh, like mm -hmm. this? Um, and if they were putting in references to Jesus, wouldn't they want to put in more reverential references to Jesus? Um, so I'd say I would expect something uh, much more obviously anachronistic, if that was the case. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, look at the way Pharaoh talks in the Quran, I think would be a far better example of how um, they say, I say a later writing might imagine uh, someone from a much earlier period yeah. speaking. Um, uh, so, so it's it's kind of anachronic, and it's a bit anachronistic to say that like, oh, they were a bunch of medieval apologists trying to you know inflate this account to prove who Jesus was. That's a very kind of yeah. modern atheistic, neo-atheistic agenda, but that's not what the medieval yeah. scribes. Yeah, and, and likewise, you know, with um, with Tacitus, who uh, you know is an important uh, witness to early Christianity, um, the manuscripts of Tacitus nearly got entirely lost, you know. Because if I wow. can say there was that little interest in the Middle Ages in yeah. Tacitus. So the thought that people have preserved this because uh, they wanted to help apologists in the 21st century, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and yeah. even yeah. Um, when Tacitus records things, he records that in, in Rome there was a group that the crowd called Christians who were named after mm -hmm. Christus, Christ. And that's really interesting because... Again, no Christian who would be writing that text would write, the crowd calls them Christians. The, the, the Christian would generally write Christians. They'd write their name properly. Yeah. You know? So right, again, right. this is exactly what we'd expect um, when we got an independent um, 
you know, non-Christian source talking about Christianity. It really fits. Okay. <clears throat> so I went ahead. I'm going to try to play. I'm going to try to stump the scholar here. I went online and typed in contradictions in the New Testament. Now, most of the sites that pop up were kind of Christian apologetic sites, but the second website that popped up was uh, was by I think an atheist trying to um, show that Christianity is untrue. So I just I was just kind of skimming through these. Um, would love to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, the first thing he raises is the ge- the genealogies in Matthew and Luke clearly uh, contradict themselves. You have a genealogy for Joseph in in the book of Matthew, um, and then another genealogy in Luke. Um, what does he say? He says, oh, Christians try to say that's a genealogy of Mary, not Joseph, but that doesn't work. He says, explicitly says that it's Joseph's genealogy in Luke 3, 23. Um, so yeah, I could, I could read more, but I'm, I know you're familiar with this. Sure. What, what do you say about the two contradictions? So I think one of the, of the very genealogy? first things we've got to do is we've got to set our evidential gauge right. Uh, because what's ha- what I think tends to happen is a skeptic asks a question like this, Um, And the assumption is, unless the Christian can come up with a really good answer, then the case for skepticism stands. And I don't want to say I don't think that that holds at all, Um, because we've got cases where um, all sorts of writers write things that it's difficult to fit together with other things that doesn't lead us to skepticism. Um, So I'd want to try and get some... Uh, sense of, of where someone's going with this. I mean, how would you expect there to be about nine hours of text, which is what the Gospels is, um, where you've got, yeah. you know, four accounts of, um, you know, similar things, and for there not to be um, tensions and uh, differences, often we can find mm-hmm. that such things, when you go deeper in, uh, can be reconciled. But again, how, how plausible does a reconciliation have to be? Does it have to be 2%, right. 3% plausible or what before you start saying the entire view that the Gospels are trustworthy needs to be questioned? And for me, I, it's not obvious to me that uh, the burden of proof lies on me at all. I would want to say, well, surely if you as a skeptic are wanting to say that this text contradicts this text, then you have to show me that there is no possible way that they can be reconciled. The burden of proof is simply on you. I'm not, I'm not even going to begin no. um, to do uh, uh, your work for you. You've got to show me that. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so I, I, do, I do want to start with that um, okay. because I think that's a perfectly normal way of, of working things. Uh, now, okay. are there ways that the things can be fitted together? Yeah, sure. There are multiple ways. My problem is I don't know which way. And I don't think that ways that they fit together have to be more than 50% probable before um, they can be brought in. Um, so there are all sorts of things in life that happen that have lower than a 50% probability. So I, I'm fine yeah. with that. I mean, if I were constantly having huh. to appeal to low probabilities on everything at every corner as I read the Gospels, then I should be really worried. But I don't have to do that. Yeah. Um, so I think um, I've got lots of high probability things on my side. They may think they've got high probability things on their side. And I want to say, well, who's got more? You know, um, yeah, and, yeah. and let's look at it like that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to go into, you know, the way um, Eusebius 
will quote, you know, Julius Africanus on these genealogies and and so on, and, and we 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 can go into that. And you know, there's some yeah. basis I, I could maybe get onto that in a moment, but I, I want to sort of get the gauge right. Does yeah. that make sense? <clears throat> yeah. So just if I could summarize, just so I make sure I understand. So you're saying that like all of these kind of classic contradictions, these things that uh, crit- you know, skeptics point out, you know, we have to understand that they are within the the that when we approach those, we're approaching the text with a nine, let's just arbitrarily throw out 90, 95% is remarkably accurate. So we're dealing with a really small percentage. And then you're saying, then you would say that I'm quite happy with there being several possible responses. And you're saying you don't need to have an airtight black and white. Here is how you respond to that. As long as there's other probable options, because it's when the, it's within the larger framework of there's remarkable accuracy. On sure. The so that, um, yeah. I would say this is the way we treat our friends that if our friend <laughs> uh, makes uh, a reason for not doing something, which to us at a sort of initial assessment would seem quite unlikely. Uh, if we trust our friends, we'd say, okay, I take your testimony for it. You know, um, you know, okay. or your friend might tell you something that seems like a highly improbable series of events, but again, the testimony carries for it. So I want to say, what does testimony count for? Now we then okay. get to the specifics and remember that, um, in the story in Matthew, um, Joseph's got this great idea, uh, of, uh, Mary's pregnant. He finds that out. And so he's going to divorce her quietly and save the family name. Um, has he spoken to anyone at this point? Well, maybe let's say he's spoken to his dad. Uh, and he's spoken to his dad and he says, well, I'm going to divorce her. And dad says, yeah, that, that's a really good idea. Um, and um, a little while later, Joseph comes to his dad and says, look, an angel's appeared to me and says, I really should marry her. At that point, dad says, you're not my son anymore. You know? Um, uh, that, 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 that's, that's really quite plausible. Now I'm not saying that happened. I'm just, I, I don't know, but that's perfectly yeah. consistent with events. I mean, it, the whole question of, of, of shame and honor of a family with an out of wedlock, uh, child at the time, absolutely huge. And we know in society today, loads of people have two fathers, you know, one legal, one yeah. biological, that's, that's perfectly normal. So is there a problem with, um, the idea that, um, you know, Joseph had more than one fa- uh, father. I don't see any problem with that. Now, what... So, because, just just so people know the problem. So, Matthew has a different father for yeah, Joseph so Matthew than has Luke. Jacob that, that's and what, yeah. uh, Luke has Eli. But, again, I don't think okay. that has to be a problem. Now, then people say, well, yeah, but then shouldn't they have a common father and so on? Um, and I'd want to say, uh, yeah, but then, again, you've got to look at <clears throat> the law of lever at marriage... Uh, where it's claimed, you know, by Julius Africanus that there was uh, this thing uh, going on where people would raise up to a brother who had no children, offspring through their wife. Um, and so this this is the sort of thing you, you need to bear in mind. Now, I'm not saying this happened at all. I'm just saying yeah. we've got yeah, Luke, yeah. we've got Matthew... We can do some studies of Luke's genealogy because basically um, Luke's genealogy goes back a thousand years or so from Jesus uh, to David and beyond. But between David and Jesus, there's almost no name that he gets from the Old Testament. 
So then you start saying, well, if he were just making up names, would he be able to get the plausible sorts of names for a thousand years of genealogy before Jesus' time? And if, for instance, he were giving a name like Philip or Herod at 800 BC, I would be really worried because there'd be Greek names right, and that right. would be just wouldn't fit. But thankfully, he doesn't. Actually, there is certain plausibility uh, to the family tree he gives there. Uh, Luke, uh, you can see it's the family tree from David through his son, Nathan. Nathan means to give, or it's the, the root give, and you will see a huge number of the names in that genealogy are repeating that root. And we know from studies of biblical genealogies that very often you get particular names and themes or roots and themes that are favored within particular genealogical lines. Hmm. Wow. So, for instance, we know in the Old Testament that Gera, G-E-R-A, is a name used in the tribe of Benjamin. All four people who have that name are from the tribe of Benjamin. You have certain things that happen with particular tribes, particular groups. And so there's a plausibility to Luke's genealogy um, early on when you think, well, look, this really does look like it comes from decent testimony. So I'd want to say we've got to uh, build that case in. And I don't think that the um, Christians need to wring their hands in worry if they can't unite behind a single explanation for how this yeah. fits with that. Okay. No, that's super helpful. That, that's been how I've – and I'm not, I'm not like an apologetic type kind of person. Like this isn't my area. But when I do face tensions, potential contradictions, that, that's typically how I've done it intuitively. I don't need to have everything ironed out. So neat and tidy. And because, again, the overarching his, historicity, but also just the, um, the beauty and coherency and compellingness of the Christian worldview as it's mapped on the biblical story yeah. to me is like the best of all the I, I tweeted the other day. I said, well, you know, whenever I doubt my faith, the one thing that keeps me going is the legitimacy of the other options. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, and um, the other thing I'd want and to I don't say need to have every, every, everything tied, tied so neatly. is we need to remember that the Bible is supposed to have evidence against the Bible. Now, what I mean by that is, um, in the biblical story, since uh, um, humans first fell, um, God has been revealing himself and hiding himself. And he does both. Huh. And the supreme example of this is on the cross, great account in Luke, where one... Uh, thief on a cross is mocking Jesus and the other one is seeing that the person next to him is about to come into a kingdom. Now I would have thought that a pretty good piece of evidence that Jesus is not the Messiah is that he got crucified. I mean, that is, you know, um, that's a sure yeah. sign the Romans are winning. So people can stand there underneath the cross and say, wow, we're getting an evidential overload that this guy's an imposter, <laughs> you know, and that's happening yeah. just as God is most revealing, clearly revealing himself to humanity. So in other words, you have the moral structure of evidence in Scripture, whereby it's made so that if you seek, you find, and if you do not seek, you stumble. That's the, that's the structure it has. So that means if you do not seek the, um, God, you will find mountains of evidence to support your case. It's actually structured so that you will constantly find more and more evidence to support your case. If you seek God, it's made so you'll find more and more evidence to support the, the truth of scripture. 
Wow, I, I I've never thought of it like I mean, that. Does that That's, make sense? I mean, I, well, as you're talking, it made me think of like Isaiah six and and um, uh, you know, his preaching will harden the hearts of those who don't believe, and and you know, I, I yeah, so I, I think it, evidence but, is know. morally structured. Um, right. And one of the problems with certain types of evidentialist apologetic is that they want mm-hmm. to sort of claim, and there's some validity to this, that the evidence is really overwhelming. And so mm-hmm. what they do is they therefore want to use all sorts of superlatives about the evidence, which um, are problematic because they don't also deal with the fact that God is hiding. Um, you know, God, yeah. God could clearly make himself yeah. a lot clearer yeah. than he does. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you admit that because I often think that and people don't yeah. admit it. So, I mean, so at yeah, one level, good. I can look out <laughs> at the sky behind me and say, wow, this is all evidence for God. I mean, I think it is. I really do think it is. I think we're surrounded by mountains of evidence of God. But at the same time, yeah. it's not that I've got his name written up in the sky or that he sends an angel every right. time I ask. So clearly right. there could be more. Um, and, and we're involved in a moral enterprise, you know. And that's where faith, I mean, that, it's kind of cliched, but I mean, isn't that where faith comes in? Yeah, God now, wants I just that. don't like the word faith as used today because it's so often used to mean believe anyway. And that's where I prefer okay. the word trust because I, I do think it's closer to pistis. I think it's closer to Latin fides, yeah. that sense of, of course, there's evidence for this. And it's also got a, a good sense. It's a personal word. You know, we trust people. Yeah. And I think that really helps um, us yeah. think about the fact that we can choose not to trust people. We can choose to trust people. There are consequences either way. Yeah. Pete, we've been talking for almost a half hour. We haven't even, I want to, I want to go back and just have you talk a little bit about your, your upbringing and who you are. Yeah, sure. uh, I, you know, I, I, I said in the intro, some basic stuff about you being the warden of Tyndale house and what that is. But, um, did you grow up, uh, like speaking Latin at the age of five or something? Uh, I think I heard no, that. So I wasn't able to start Latin until I was 12 and I didn't start Greek. Oh, you poor 14. soul. Yeah. And I had to wait till I was 20 before I did Hebrew. So I had a very deprived upbringing. No, seriously. Um, uh, no, I've been blessed, uh, you know, with a family, that were really interested in books and learning. Both of my parents were Christians. In university, I had a rough time uh, with, um, you know, thinking through uh, Christianity. I was a Christian at the time, but went through a period of doubt because um, I think it, at university, all sorts of questions are opened and you start realizing that all sorts of answers that are being given are not good enough. Um, uh, and actually to realize that, um, there's a plausibility with all sorts of other views in the world. Um, you know, mm. intelligent people hold them. They're not straw men. And you really have to engage with that. Um, but then, you know, God brought me through that. And I think um, I now feel, wow, we're just, there's so much yeah. evidence that uh, there isn't even time to publish it. You know, uh, there's right, so much right. that could be researched. Um, yeah. So a lot of your scholarly kind of trajectory lingering in the background, has it been kind of uh, exploring and, and, and unpacking the evidence for Christianity, kind of a, a broad kind of apologetic? Is that always kind of shaping what well, you do? I, or, it, it, uh, it is something I'm very excited about. But I think, um, let's put it this way, if no one was de- debating or uh, doubting the Christian faith, we wouldn't have any need right. for apologetics. So it's far more interesting simply to explore what God has to say to us in Scripture and often the most exciting yeah. thing um, is 
you know, the message of the scriptures, and it's also the best apologetic. So often um, what happens is people have got apologetics far too big and scripture far too small. It's almost like they're embarrassed to the Bible. They don't want people to get to the Bible. They need to put their arguments in the way. And I think, no, um, apologists should do their work enough to get people reading the scripture and then get out of the way. And they can come back every time they're called for by a Bible reader. And the Bible reader says, yeah. well, what do you make of this or whatever? Then they can come in. But otherwise, get out, you know, let, let, let God do his work with his word. Speaking of Bible reading, you have been working on a new uh, Greek New Testament, yep. which uh, you want to show that to us and talk a bit about yeah, that? So, I know this has been um, a project you've been you know, involved uh, in for a while. came out with that uh, a year ago, uh, the Tinder House um, Greek New Testament. And um, I think it's uh, the most carefully printed uh, edition ever made. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I mean, I really do. Every single paragraph comes from early manuscripts. And uh, we've now just okay. got a reader's edition coming out with half the page, oh, nice. the page oh, yeah, full of vocabulary, yeah. you see. So, um, you know, yeah, uh, anyone, I like, yeah. uh, any vocabulary <laughs> that uh, occurs 25 times or uh, fewer will be down at the bottom. Uh, and yeah. all the difficult verbs are there. Um, and yeah. so that's just trying to encourage people to read it. So I think people make it sound as if Greek is harder than it is. Obviously, it's hard to master it. But to start it, to get something, is not that hard. Uh, I think yeah. in a lot of ways, it's like, um, as a parent, I have to read the ingredients on tins, and I know I'll never be a dietitian. But I couldn't, as a parent, mm -hmm. not read um, nutritional input ever. You know, I, I think for me not yeah. to read would be almost immoral nowadays. I think in the same way, <laughs> you don't need to say, I'm going to be a Greek grammar expert to say, I'm interested in what God has to say. I'm therefore going to take an interest in the languages. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to challenge my audience here because I think I, I think I know what you're going to say. Because um, I get asked this question quite a bit, you know, from aspiring pastors, somebody that wants to be a Christian leader. And the question comes up, do I need to know Greek? Um, and, and I don't, you know, I... I I don't want to say categorically, no, you can't be a pastor and not know Greek. I don't, I don't want to say that. At the same time, if you have any possible opportunity to learn Greek as a Christian leader pastor, then I'm going to say, yes, absolutely, you need to uh, pursue that. What would you say to somebody well, who I would say, want to be a know, pastor? What if a parent were to ask me, do I need to know or think about nutritional input for the food I give my children? And I will say, well, what sort of parent are you? Are you going to be a responsible parent? So if a pastor <laughs> who is a shepherd, who is a feeder of the flock, right, is asking me, do I need to care about precisely what God says? I would say, yeah, your job is chief food supplier. How can you not care about precisely what God says about getting that? Now, does that mean you need to become a language expert? No. There's software, uh, there are things to do, but should you constantly be taking an interest? Should you be obsessed by the question, what exactly has God said? Yes, that, that's a big part of your job. So I'd want to say um, yeah. that, you know, it's not as if you're asking people to um, learn a modern language where, of course, the emphasis is on, on gaining fluency and so on. We're asking people to say, uh, look, I've got, I've got to teach this book from God's word, how can I make sure that what I'm teaching 
is as accurate and as full as possible that I'm seeing the connections how and, and I think this is why I'd say look every pastor has to be obsessed by scripture that's that's yeah. a key part yeah, of it and so how could you be obsessed by scripture and never want ever to look up a word in the original I mean it just doesn't make any yeah. sense to me at all um yeah <laughs> i'll never forget peter i don't think i told you this but i i felt like coming into my phd and you were i think you're in your second year teaching at aberdeen university and we had that philo mm -hmm. uh reading class um and i i felt like i was decent at new testament greek i was by no means that was not my strength but i was you know took you know three or four years and, and did a lot of reading or whatever but when I cracked open the Greek of Philo, I could not read more than half a sentence. And ever since that day, I stopped saying, people say, do you know Greek? I used to say, oh, yeah, I know Greek. After trying to read Philo <laughs> and you just like reading it like I would read the English, I was like, oh, my word. I mean, New Testament Greek is quite a bit easier and different than actual, you know, classical yeah, Greek. Yeah, well, but. Um, but this is where I'd say, and perhaps, you know, now I'm 48 and a bit more mature, I've changed my view on, on things. <laughs> where I think there's a tendency, if you're quite good academically, to focus entirely on gaining new knowledge and sort of trying to become a brainiac and know everything. And yeah. I think it's good for us to celebrate the feats that our brains can do because God gave us them and that's great. But I also now want to celebrate what my brain cannot do. You know, the fact is I'm a creature. I am therefore <laughs> meant to have limited knowledge. And God's got all knowledge. And actually, that's really cool. And I, so I'm great about the fact that there are all sorts of things I'm not very good at. And people can tell me the difference between amps and volts a thousand times, and I'll just forget it a thousand times. But I can do biblical languages and, and, and so on. And for people yeah. to know what they're good at, what their calling is, but to use to celebrate that they can use their brains to learn more about God's word, but also not to get... Um, depressed by the fact that there are people who know more or that there are limits yeah. to what they can learn and so on that's all fine we're not meant to be unlimited you know we're, we're god's mm, creatures and we can celebrate that and celebrate the fact that we mm. have an all-knowing all-powerful savior you know so i think again yeah. there is this tendency for you know christian pop culture to put um you know people who've got some in some circles people who've got you know um, high levels of education on a particular pedestal as if they're then supposed to know everything and they become the answer person for everything and you just think this is ridiculous no one's supposed to know everything you know we're actually not supposed yeah. to know everything can't we celebrate that you know yeah you def you definitely didn't tell me that 10 years ago at Aberdeen, <laughs> but <I'm> <laughs> and, and I, it's you know i think you are reflecting maybe a more of a uk version of christianity because in america it can't in some certain many circles, American evangelicalism is almost flipped to where people are nervous if you have a high degree and they're like, oh, oh you sure, sure. And, and people again, can, you know, that's, <laughs> there's this sort of awkwardness um, that people have um, where in a sense, people, you can have a chip on your shoulder about not knowing things. But I think part of that, again, yeah. comes back to, you know, people who have done study shouldn't be bragging about it. I mean, I think we can celebrate yeah. uh, again that God's given some people amazing athletic abilities god's given some people amazing mental abilities in particular areas you know it's not in every area typically um you know sometimes those people are lacking social skills you know they've got more in one area sure. than in another um but i think we celebrate the you know the way 
uh, we've been made and recognize that God's made us complete uh, beings. We do need to use our brains. We're meant to love God with all our minds. And so, you know, my challenge to people would be say, well, what, what mind are you give, being given? You know, make sure you're stretching that, studying, but don't get depressed about all the books you haven't read. You know. Yeah, that's good. I, I fall into that. I, I especially with sexuality and gender. There's so many layers and layers and layers of this conversation. I'm constantly feeling like for every book I read, there's five more I need sure. to read. And so that's. that's but can you help helpful. people without having read every book? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, we have, we have a few more minutes. Uh, let's let's. I want to talk just briefly about Tyndale House. Yeah. Uh, it's hard. So Tyndale House is one of my favorite uh, places on earth and it's in my favorite city, at least in the Western world. I absolutely love Cambridge and you've been there for over 10, what, 12 years 11, now yeah, or yeah. something. Uh, t- t- tell us a bit about what Tyndale house is. So Tyndalehouse.com. Uh, you want to look up our website. It's, uh, you know, it's the, <laughs> the top evangelical research center for the Bible. And so we've got 50 researchers there every day, basically working at the doctoral level and above researching the bible so more things written there um than you know other places in terms of research um and people doing degrees doctorates people on sabbatical we've got our own staff um and you know our aim is to uh show that you you know can really uh, be a christian you could be an evangelical and use your mind to celebrate that um in the study of the scriptures and so we want the um, entire global church to raise its game uh, in terms of the um, thinking about scripture. There's just so much there to be thought about. And from uh, Tinder House, you know, has come all sorts of uh, research, which has helped a lot of people, even though they've never heard of us. So uh, often right. when people are using Bible translations, whether it's the ESV, the NIV, the New Living Translation, all sorts of other ones, a load of the people who are um, inputting on those translations have actually spent time, you know, at Tinder House. Yeah, yeah it's uh, you guys pride yourself on having at least uh, all or at least as as much as you can, but you know, books related to biblical studies. So if you're doing research on anything in the Bible, doing not necessarily theology or philosophy, yeah. but biblical studies, you have this library, which doesn't seem very huge, but when you wander the, it's, 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 it's hallways, you know, it's just like, there is not a single commentary or, or relevant book on the Bible. That's just not. Yeah. Not and here. I think it's, it's really also, remarkable. you know, who comes through that. So, I mean, my, my guess is that, you know, um, a third to a half of all of the prominent evangelical scholars in the world have spent time at Tinder house, you know, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, you know, I met, uh, I was there well, a few times back when I was doing my PhD and towards the end of my doctorate, uh, John Piper was yep. there doing research. I remember I was, I was in the kitchen making soup or something. I turn around and there's John Piper and he, he introduces himself with a big smile. Hi, I'm, my name's John. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I think there was, uh, yeah, I, whatever you're there, you kind of, I, I think it is the, the, the social kind of vibe that is created there. I love, do you guys still have, you, you bang the gong and everybody has to break for 10 Absolutely. minutes of tea and coffee and never change. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. So good. So if anybody is listening, yeah. I mean, can anybody go if somebody is, say they have a master's degree, but they just want to go somewhere for a month and study? Are there requirements? Like yeah, they so have we're going to gonna, have we're a gonna prioritize researchers, uh, and particularly that will happen in peak months like June, July, when you know we're, we're crowded out even more than usual. Uh, but uh, okay. other times, yeah, there can be space for other people. Okay. I, just say we've also I was just talking about a new magazine, which is free, um, which is okay. called... Uh, you can, again, sign up at tinderhouse.com. 
which is called the Ink Magazine. So, um, and uh, if oh, you wow, get yeah. to their house, the, PH and the ink. ink, you get think, you see. <laughs> well, and that's really trying to nice. celebrate, you know, um, celebrate the Bible uh, and get people, you know, wanting to know it more. Yeah. Oh, great. I'm, I might, you know, I'm, I'm due. I've never had a sabbatical and I'm due for one. So you may yeah, get an email from me in the near future asking for some space. Uh, yeah. Down the road at Tyndale house. It'd be so much, so much fun. But um, Pete, thanks so much for being on the show. Really oh, appreciate it. Again, the book is, the book is, can we trust the gospels? It's uh, put out by Crossway. And then also check out the new uh, Tyndale, is it Tyndale Greek New Testament or what's the official name yeah, if uh, people were searching for it? it? It's just called the Greek New Testament, but it's produced uh, by okay. Crossway. Uh, and okay. Um, yeah. Okay, sweet. Thanks so much, Pete, for being on the show. Great to be with you.